back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. Coming at you live from the Adrenaline Radio Studios. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the writers, directors, producers, actors, production designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, composers, choreographers, costume designers, production designers, you name it, we talk to them. Um, today, I'm very excited about today's show. Um, midpoint of the show, you're going to be hearing from Paul Tanter about his new film, Stealing Chaplin. Uh, this is, it is dark comedy. It is a comedy of errors. It is immensely fun. And it takes a real life incident the theft, the grave robbing of Charlie Chaplin's grave in Switzerland, which happened back in the 70s. And it, the story is Simon Phillips, Phillips is a screenwriter. He also stars in the film. Um, they take that whole premise of Chaplin's, of Chaplin's body being stolen out of the grave and held for ransom, but twist it around, set it in Vegas involves some bumbling con men, um, have the media involved, which was social media and whatnot. Um, it's a little more dramatic than um, the slower-paced news of the 1970s when the actual theft in Switzerland occurred. But these two con men dig it up, think they can ransom the chaplain body in order to pay their own debts to a loan shark, to a mobster, Throw in a few more mobsters. Throw in some br- greedy people. Uh, with it's just, And then toss in Wayne Newton. And it's, <laughs> it's great. It's great. So I'm very excited to talk to Paul about this. And uh, I want to hear more from him. Part of this film was actually shot on Wayne Newton's estate. His 27-acre estate in Las Vegas. So you, not only do you get Mr. Las Vegas in your film, but you're shooting it on his estate. So I can't wait to talk to Paul about that. But we're going to have a, an exclusive pre-recorded interview here in just a minute about one of the most beautiful, beautiful films uh, very creative, very imaginative that is out in theaters right now. Um, but first, let me remind you, you know, you can't always hear us live every every week on AdrenalineRadio.com or watch our live stream. My uninspired tablescape today, for those of you watching, I was rushing. I was chatting with our fearless leader, Mr. Fedorov. Uh, so... I couldn't get as ornate with our set dress today. So if you're watching on the Facebook live stream of AdrenalineRadio.com, my apologies. Uh, But that's where you can find us every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, AdrenalineRadio.com or AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. But you miss us live, don't worry, because then you can find us on all the podcasting platforms, generally by Tuesday, as well as on BehindTheLensOnline.net where every single one of our shows for the past seven years is archived 
and available with some really great interviews in there. Plus, you'll also find movie reviews, interviews, trailers, and other fun stuff uh, within the website. A lot of new interviews up this week. A lot of new interviews. I think there's, I think there are nine new interviews up on the site uh, this week since we last chatted last Monday. So, and there are more are coming along with a few reviews. So, but as for today, the film we're going to talk about right now is The Waterman. It marks David Oyelowo's directorial debut. And I have to say, this is one heck of a debut. This is an exquisitely done film. The production values are so well done. Uh, cinematographer Matthew Lloyd, what he does visually to bring this story to life. Because this story, this tale is told, uh, written by Emma Needle. She is the screenwriter. And this real, it's told through the eyes of a young boy who is a graphic artist and who is working on his own graphic novel. And that is incorporated into this story as a whole, but then visually translated so that we're seeing a lot of his graphic novel come to life within the tale of the Waterman. Um, and the story, it is charming. It is heartfelt. Uh, it is for the whole family. Let's face it, it is for the whole family. It is the story of a young boy named Gunner, played by Lonnie Chavis. And I have to tell you, I first experienced the joy of Lonnie Chavis back in the fall with a film called The Boy Behind the Door. Uh, the film premiered at Fantastic Fest, and it came from the fertile minds of David Charbonnet and Justin Powell, who have another film that is now out that has just opened, that we're going to hear about next week. I've already spoken to the boys again. I love their work. Um, but Lonnie was such a standout in Boy Behind the Door. So to see what he does in Waterman is even more impressive. But in Waterman, he sets out, his character of Gunner sets out to save his mother, played by Rosario Dawson, who is dying of, of cancer. Because he's heard of the Waterman, this town they live in. He's heard of the Waterman that somehow has a secret, the fountain of youth, uh, immortality. And he hooks up with this local girl who claims to have seen the Waterman. And they go into a very remote area of the forest by themselves, uh, encounter sounds and of, of nature and things they think they might see or not see. Um, so it kind of feels like sitting around the campfire at night, you know, in the woods telling ghost stories. And that's David captures that so beautifully from a visual and emotional standpoint. But it all comes down to this story and this script. Uh, this script, Emma's script, was uh, on the blacklist. And the Blacklist, for those that don't know, it comes out annually. It is the quote-unquote most liked film screenplays that have not yet been produced. 
screenwriters can submit their screenplays, they upload them, and then Hollywood professionals look at it and they do likes, dislikes. Um, Blacklist kind of predated a lot of social media likes and dislikes. But it's always a great thing when you make this very exclusive Blacklist. And Emma's story was on there before it was finally picked up. And then David came on as director to give us his first directorial feature uh, with The Waterman. Now, Emma herself has directed. So she under- she's directed two prior shorts. So she understands translating the page to the screen and incorporating vis- uh, visuals. But as you're going to hear her talk about, one of the biggest challenges she faced with this story was finding the tone. That that is always her biggest challenge is to find the tone on the page so that it can be translated. It's hard enough to find tone within the written word, but then to translate it into visuals. It can get very, very tricky. And with a film like The Waterman, emotion is everything the fear of a young boy the fear about his mother dying but the confidence and the chutzpah that he has to want to go out and save her by any means possible even if it is a folkloric tale that he firmly believes in because he's holding on to hope and this is a driving thing within the film And we see it constantly play out. And you feel it as you watch the film. So, without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Emma Needle, screenwriter of The Waterman. Hi, Emma. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Well, after watching The Waterman, I am so excited to talk to you. And all all I want right now... I want this made into a storybook, into a book. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. It sounds like you enjoyed the film, which oh, is awesome. I am in love with this film. This is the kind of the kind of film that uh, you know, for teens even uh, that Zilpha Keatley Snyder used to write back in the 50s and the uh early 60s and it's mm-hmm. it's full of adventure and the characters are fabulous and then what David does cinematically he has mm-hmm. an incredible directorial eye at bringing this story to life um, yeah. it, it, he really captures the graphic novel idea of our young hero Gunner and mm-hmm. captures that. And as I'm watching the film, all I could think of is, oh, my God, I can see pen and ink drawings in a book, in a book. I want, I want a book. I want to turn the pages. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is such a beautiful story. Besides all the adventure, you've got, you know, you, you set this in a forest. You've got Mother Nature play and all the tricks of the trade that I can just see uh, the look on their faces, how you had this described in the script. And then you deal with the issues of the father and son dynamic, the mother and son mm-hmm. dynamic, and then the family unit as a whole. Mm-hmm. And where, where did you even get the idea for this? And 
the whole concept of the waterman and hope. Yeah. Hope is at yes. the end is yes. is the light is that golden light. Yes. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for your kind words. I mean, this is honestly why we do it. Um, and why I wrote the script was um, I had this idea, um, this feeling um, that I wanted to communicate to other people. Um, you know, writing can be such a lonely experience, but with Waterman, I, I felt really, I felt less lonely because I wanted to communicate a philosophy and a thought that I believe more than anything. And it is this idea of hope, and specifically that hope is the strongest form of bravery. Um, and that came from a lot of different things. Um, but, you know, first and foremost, um, I, I, I'll tell you a quick story um, of, where, of, of where kind of the inspiration for the Waterman came from. Um, so nature has always been a huge source of inspiration for me. It's been, I, I grew up on a uh, cattle ranch in rural Colorado, and my brother and I would explore the woods behind our house, and, you know, it wasn't just earth. It was, um, you know, a fantasy world, and we'd make up our own mythology. Mm -hmm. So nature has always been a source of, of inspiration for me. But when I was 18, um, I heard the story of a friend of a friend who had a near-death experience as a river guide um, on, a, on a river. And, you know, it's a river they had rafted many times. Um, they fell off, and as happenstance, were, they were held underwater by the current and technically drowned. Luckily, they were resuscitated with CPR. Um, but I heard how it changed their kind of whole perspective on the world. There was a moment when they were being held underwater um, that they realized they were going to die, and... Um, they were filled not with, with fear, but with a sense of euphoria and peace. And it completely changed their perspective. And um, n now, you know, there's, there's a sense of peace when it comes to death. And I heard that story when I was, um, my family and I were kind of reeling from the uh, death of my grandparents. And it was particularly hard on my father. Um, and we were all sort of questioning as a family, like, okay, you know, what is life? What is death? What does this all mean? Um, and then, so cut to a few years later, I moved to LA and um, I'm really struggling. I, I was a broke college grad. I didn't know a soul. You know, I had no connections in Hollywood whatsoever. I was just like stumbling my way through Craigslist jobs that I could find. So I eventually got a nanny position, assistant slash nanny position for a family in Hollywood. And a 10 year old boy that I met with or that I was um, taking care of he was also questioning this stuff. And we had really great conversations about it, but it made me realize, you know, we're all sort of wondering this ourselves. Um, we're all sort of asking these fundamental questions of, you know, what is the point, what is life? And I just, this feeling kept bubbling up, this idea of, I wanna to communicate to the world that hope is, is bravery. Uh, and that's what motivated me to write this. Um, ultimately well and and that really comes across on the film the whole the whole idea of the the antiques the antique samurai sword um mm -hmm. is is brilliant because not only does it metaphorically represent the division between father and son between the family you know it's it's cut they've been cut apart but samurai equals bravery in history mm -hmm. 
And so that's actually, I have to give credit. Uh, Dave, that was David's idea. Ah. Brilliant. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we have to talk about David in a minute because he's just the best in the whole world. But yeah, I love that. Sorry. Keep going. Oh, <laughs> but, and then you, you compound that with David casting Lonnie, who mm-hmm. I am in love with. I saw him in The Boy Behind the Door. Back when it had before it had its world premiere in the fall, and this kid, he exudes bravery and hope in his stance, the way he walks, in his facial determination. I can't envision another child actor out there that could play Gunner with the conviction yeah. that he does, and also with the heart. His heart, we really feel. Gunner's heart in this mm-hmm. film. The whole you got the whole package here, Emma. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. And um, I want to say to you know, I think your job as a writer, as a screenwriter, ultimately, I, I really you know, I, I think I've read this in books before, but I really learned it on this set. Your job as a screenwriter is to write something that inspires others. Um, you know. First and foremost, it inspired David to come on board, and he was so passionate, and it's truly his passion for the project that drove every decision and that ultimately got this made. Mm-hmm. But on set, he really created, and I was on set for it, um, which also, you know, he, he made a promise that I would be involved in the project from start to finish, and he was absolutely true to his word. So I just want to acknowledge how wonderful he is. Uh, so on set... He really made set a space for other artists to shine and a safe space, especially, you know, he's an actor. So he really understands the needs of an actor. Yeah. Um, and he made set a very safe space to explore and to tap into some kind of intense emotions. Um, and Lonnie, just, you know, a little tidbit, he had his mother on set, Naja, who's just one of the kindest human beings um, I'm obsessed with that family. They're so they're so wonderful, and Lonnie really tapped into you know his own love for his mother, um, which I think is what comes across so strongly. I mean, he's such a loving, um, brave young man, um, and he tapped into you know something um, very kind of primal and wonderful um, with uh, you know driven by a love for his mother. But I, I give credit to David for creating such a safe and collaborative space for everyone, actors, the cinematographer, our composer, the production designer. I mean, he really wanted to elevate everyone's own artistry. Um, and I think that's the greatest service a screenplay can do, mm-hmm. to get all the other artists excited about what they can bring to the table. Well, you know, as George Clooney has said many times, if the words aren't on the page to start with, you got nothing. Um, so it's very obvious the words were on the page here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm very curious um, with your writing process because every screenwriter works differently, and I've known yeah. I have known some that for a 90 minute movie have written a screenplay that is over 250 pages long <laughs> because they have put in every screen direction. Every set description with such specificity that they can't understand why nobody is interested in their script and why it doesn't get made. Um, <laughs> because of, of the visual nature 
of the graphic novel concept in and of itself, how particular were you with how you envisioned the Waterman? Oh, man, I think one of the most difficult challenges that a screenwriter faces is how to communicate tone Mm -hmm. in a script. Because tone is created by all the elements, right? Visual cues, sound cues, acting. That's not what a script is. Yeah. (laughs) I think writing tone on the page is the challenge, capital C challenge of screenwriting. Um, But... Um, for me, it was a, it was a, a, I think you have to do a less is more, um, and you have to, uh, I mean, the hope is you find someone, a a director who understands the tone and and how to bring that to life. And that's something I know because, um, you know, uh, I had a lot of conversations with David where he would go talk to a lot of directors. You know, he knows so many directors. Mm -hmm. He's been a, a professional actor for how many years? But so he, he really relied on mentorship. And so he would go talk to different directors and then come back and we'd kind of break down the script together and, and flesh it out for tone. By that initial script, um, I think very important to establish tone. And this is sort of like a, a screenwriting craft tip that I, I really believe in. Your first two pages are your most important pages to establish tone. And if you can crack tone, and give a sense of, you know, is this a comedy or a drama or elements of fantasy and horror? If you can get that right in the first two pages, uh, I think it, the reader's brain kind of clicks into, oh, this is the kind of story. Um, so I think, yeah, front load your tone in the first two pages and then let the rest of it kind of breathe and speak for itself. Mm-hmm. How happy are you with the visuals of how the Waterman looks in the film? I get really excited. I'm a, I'm a big um, uh, I'm a big cheerleader of original ideas, and, mm-hmm. and those are the kind of projects I want to work on. And for me, there's nothing that gets me more excited than seeing something cinematically that I've never seen before. And this film does that. This film gets me so excited. There's a lot I've never seen. You know, a young African American boy with a samurai sword <laughs> on an adventure through the woods with a girl with blue hair like that's why I want to work in Hollywood for for the promise of a premise that's that original um and so I think you know I I will always of course love the script it's my baby but I think the the film the final film is a triumph it's an absolute triumph um and visually I mean you know you keep mentioning you mentioned the animation I just want to talk about that for a second yeah so, you know, um, we have our cast, we have our, we're assembling the crew. David had officially signed on as director, and our uh, line producer was like, yeah, this flashback that takes place in the 1800s, that's too expensive. <laughs> we're like, yeah, totally. <laughs> It'd be nice. <laughs> It'd be nice. And we were kind of figuring out, like, oh, do we have to scrap it? But, like, how do we tell the Waterman story? And it was David's idea. He was like, look, Gunner already draws graphic novels. What if we just tell the story, this flashback, as a point of view of, of Gunner and his imagination and the style uh, of, of drawing, um, mm-hmm. animated based off his drawings? And it was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. Um, and so sometimes, you know, the best decisions for a film come out of problems. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I give all credit to David on that front, and it's now my favorite part of the film. 
you know, I'm I'm really curious because you have directed. You've directed mm-hmm. some you've directed some shorts and I'm sure you will be back behind the camera directing something else. I have no oh, doubt. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> I'm I'm curious if your work as a director, does that impact your your writing when you're writing a screenplay? Knowing how to do that visual translation. You're not going in there cold like so many mm-hmm. screenwriters do that have no clue whatsoever. You know about where you can even yeah. what you can do with a camera or with a light bulb. Right, uh, right. I think it's really important for all screenwriters um, to be on set at some point, um, or or to ter- to try and direct because you know it's it's really easy to write in stage direction mm-hmm. that ends up being insanely expensive and impractical on the day you're trying to film. Um, and ultimately, a screenplay is is just the kind of bare bones for what the film ultimately becomes and I think it's important to understand this is a visual medium Mm -hmm. and that you know there are actors there are real people who have to embody these characters and bring them to life um you know I was talking with a writer friend of mine the other day where he was telling me a story of you know he was writing on a tv show and he had sage direction in there for something that ended up being super complicated for the actress to try and do and they had to rework it. We're just kind of laughing. It's like, yeah, you don't really realize you're sitting alone writing, and you don't realize sort of the cost of the words you're writing. And I think it's important for screenwriters um, to be on set and, and realize sort of the practical nature of filmmaking as well. Um, I think that's something, um, you know, that that has definitely served me well. Mm-hmm. You know, what did you? In the process of getting, because you've been on a journey with the Waterman, you know, it, on the blacklist, it's it's gone through, you know, trying trying to find a home here, trying to find a home there. Mm-hmm. You you find a home, you get it made. So I'm curious what you learned as a screenwriter, as a filmmaker, in getting this project made that you might try be able to circumvent your next go round. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I hope I can circumvent, but what a diff- what a journey. There's one thing I absolutely learned, and that's more than money, passion gets projects made. Um, so a quick little backstory. When I was, uh, I was an assistant slash nanny when I wrote Waterman, and I developed that, the, the script actually in, in evening classes at UCLA Extension. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, the script started going around, you know, I got a manager off of it and, um, you know, it started through word of mouth kind of going around town and I was going on, um, general meetings, um, in between my assistant job. And at the time, uh, or soon after, a couple months after, uh, I had an, an offer from an independent financier to buy the script, which for an assistant, like they were offering, you know, an eye opening amount of money. Um, and a big studio with a director involved. Mm-hmm. And I was finally in a position of choice for the first time in my life. And I really wanted to make the right choice. And for me, it was about defining success. What does success look like? Does it mean a paycheck? Um, you know, does it mean a big studio attachment? What, is it, what does it look like to be successful? And for me, the North Star of that success was I wanted, because I cared so deeply about this story, I wanted to find a collaborator who understood the story even better than I did. 
And, you know, then I got a call that David Oyelowo and Harpo Films are interested in meeting. And I went into that meeting and David's passion for the project was unparalleled by anyone I had met with at that point, slash ever. Um, and, and he not only was passionate about the project, but he understood this, this idea of hope and the premise even more than I did. And through the meandering path that eventually, you know, led to Waterman being made, and there were some definite ups and downs, David's passion for the project was unwavering. And he brought that same idea to every decision he made about the project, whether it was, okay, who do we want as our financier? Who do we want to cast? Who do we want as our cinematographer? And for him, the most important thing was passion. And I cannot stress that enough. Um, passion is what gets, especially original projects that aren't based off of like a book or a graphic novel, passion is what gets it made. Mm. So are you working on any projects now or are you just going to ride the wave of the Waterman for a little bit and enjoy? <laughs> I'm definitely going to ride the wave. However, I am working on something that I'm really excited about that I'm actually directing. <gasps> the film I'm shooting part in Colorado, part in L.A., this summer um, that uses virtual production. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a world builder and a myth maker, and I'm really excited to use virtual production to bring sort of my wild imagination to life um, on an indie scale. So anyway, more on that soon this summer, but that's what I'm looking forward to. Well, I can't wait to see you get behind the camera and what you bring us. And I still, I want a book. I want a book <laughs> of The Waterman, Emma. I, I just I will get on it. <laughs> I love this story and this film so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. That really means a lot. Oh, Emma, thank you for taking time to talk to me today. And I can't I hope we get to do it again in the future. Me too. <laughs> oh, thanks, Emma. Thanks, Debbie. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Emma Needle talking about the writing of The Waterman. And I just love the idea that she understands and she appreciates and she celebrates the idea of collaboration and having a passionate collaborative partner, uh, which she truly found uh, for this film with David Oyelowo, uh, who makes... It's an amazing directorial debut for David. Uh, so if you haven't seen it yet, get thee to a theater. Yes, a theater across the country. Theaters are open, including Los Angeles. Thank God. Uh, but it's such a beautiful film. I can't encourage you enough uh, to go see it. But we're going to shift gears now. We're going to shift gears and we're going to welcome the we're going to welcome the wonderful Paul Tanter to the show. Hi Paul. Hi, thank you very much for having me. I am thrilled to have you. With Stealing Chaplin, you have brought us a film. The idea and this concept is worthy of Charlie Chaplin himself. I could see oh, Chap I could see Chaplin making a silent film very close to what we see unfold here. Thank you very much. I take that as a huge compliment. I think that was very much in our, uh, our, our intention, was to make something that, that actually Charlie Chaplin would like and enjoy himself. So 
So, uh, you know, I, I, I'll say that as a huge compliment. I, I, I hope we've made enough of a homage to the great man himself. I think you have not only made a wonderful homage to Chaplin himself, but also to film. Uh, and I have to say kudos to Doug and to Simon Phillips um, for the script, for their craftiness, for their, yeah, every time you turn around, they're making another cinematic reference somewhere in the film. <laughs> so this really does, while it's set in Vegas, it really embraces the idea of Hollywood and let's pretend. Um, it does, yeah. And that's a, a really fun aspect of the film. But I know a lot of people don't realize that the whole Chaplin's body, his grave, really was robbed back in the 1970s. Um, that's the thing. But, but, but that's, that's, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Amazingly, you would not believe this, but uh, uh, it's actually inspired by real events. In, uh, Chaplin himself lived his final years in Switzerland and died in, on Christmas Day, 1977. And a few months later, in early 78, he was dug up and stolen by two sort of uh, inept con men who, who actually had the coffin in their, in their front room for a couple of weeks and played a bit of a cat and mouse with police. And then eventually they got caught. Um, and, and now Chaplin is back buried in the original grave, but under about 20 feet of concrete. Um, so no one else can try it again. Um, and that was just sort of a great jumping off point for a, for a, such a darkly comedic story that we thought, no, you know, like we, we have to be the ones to do this. So as you say, you know, it sort of homages Hollywood. And we thought there's one city on earth that sort of un uh, encompasses scams and schemes and people <laughs> wanting to get rich quick and that kind of thing. Um, and that was Vegas. So that seemed like a natural setting to, um, to make the contemporary version of our telling of the story. And so that's what we did. And Doug um, and Simon came up with a very a very um, inventive and creative script full of, you know, lots of uh, very unique and uh, eccentric characters and cool dialogue. And, and uh, we had a lot of fun making this uh, contemporary uh, interpretation of the story. Well, I have to say, you know, when I first found out about, about your film and, you know, it was the theft of Chaplin's body, you know, I remember when it happened in 78. And I had a, yeah. I had a film history course taught by... Uh, Professor Tim Lyons, and Tim Lyons was one of the authorities on Charlie Chaplin and actually had recently at that point just published a book, a compendium on his complete works. Oh, wow. So yeah. when this happened, yeah. oh, uh, Armageddon. Huh. This was Armageddon. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. uh, you know, an event like that and to have it s impact and you're sitting there with a professor, you know, day after day who is so moved by this, it's something you never forget. You don't forget the yeah, details. You yeah. don't forget it. So the minute I heard about this, I'm like, oh, my God. I can't wait to see it. And you did not disappoint me. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it's a weird concept, isn't it? Like, to, <laughs> to most people, what, what is a dead body worth? Well, you know, generally nothing. But if it's of the most famous uh, comedian in the world, then actually there, there may be a sort of, intrinsic value you know, to the family and to uh, interested parties and that kind of thing. So in that regard, Chaplin himself is almost, you know, what filmmakers call the MacGuffin. He's the sort mm -hmm. of the mystical object that, that, ha that has a value that everyone's after. Um, but I think it sort of lends itself very well to a, a vein of dark humor running through the story 
Um, and that's why it's a sort of, uh, you know, a darkly comedic caper, I, I would define it as. Oh, and it's such a comedy of errors. Um, yeah. You know, we can't find the body. We have the body. Somebody else wants the body. The body's not in the van. You know, wh- what <laughs> is happening? And it's like, you know, a sketch of dumb and dumber and dumbest um, (laughs) as we see it. I'll take take that as a a compliment for it as well. That's that's partly thanks to um, the chemistry uh, between Doug and Simon. They're very good together. They, They know each other very well off screen anyway. And they um, and they just play off each other and riff off each other and and, and Doug wrote a very uh, a script that sort of played to their strengths and uh, and it's it's quite fun to see these sort of two inept one slightly more inept than the other as you say they are dumb and dumber um, this this pair of inept bumbling Brits drops into a sort of uh, seedy noirish American fi- uh, crime story and seeing them uh, seeing them you know sort of swim against the tide and, and see how they fl- flounder and flourish. Well, and I love and I love that you you call this you know a, a noirish, a seedy noirish film, because I have to say what you and your cinematographer Corey Warner do, I have yeah. to tell you, I think this is Corey's first feature, but the way you have visually designed this, we get the grit, we get the neon, we get that over bright desert sun that yeah. that the darkest sunglasses are not going to eliminate all that glare. And yeah, yeah, yeah. If, I, I mean, I have, I have to say, you're absolutely right. Corey is a genius. He's, he's done a lot of um, music videos and shorts, and we have worked together on, um, on a, a TV series we did a few years ago called Age of the Living Dead. But I think this is his first feature, and we, you know, we worked very closely together in pre-production uh, on the look of it. And, and you're right, there, there was a sort of lot of discussion about. You know the the hot, you know the bright neon lights at, at night because you want that from Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. It's a very cinematic city, and at the day it's the harsh sun and the bleach, the bleach sort of look of the desert. So yeah, I think Corey did a great job making it look and feel, um, giving it that sort of noirish, um, noirish feel. You know, with a sort of hint of Elmore Leonard novels uh, about yes. it. Yeah, I, I was, I, I'm very pleased with the look. Very much a, a, a touch. You you get that sense of Elmore Leonard here, and especially when we get into the interiors. I love what you guys have done with the, lensing the interiors. Number one, the production design uh, in the apartments of Terry and Cal, our yeah, dumb and yeah. dumber con men. It is so homey. It, it yeah. belies them being the goofuses that they are until you see the fact that, okay, they have a casket sitting in the living room, just like what actually happened, sitting in their living room with a flag thrown over it as a coffee table. Um, But it's close, it's intimate, but it's not claustrophobic, but yet you can sense like the walls are metaphorically closing in on this scheme they're trying to pull off. Well, I'm I'm glad you noticed that. we were very blessed in terms of the locations that we filmed in, uh, in and around Vegas. So our producer, Ken Brezzers, he's, um, he's, uh, he's partly based in Vegas. He has a place there. So he's very clued in to uh, people and locations and, and got us things like picture vehicles and that kind of thing, but, you know, either very cheap or free. And, and the apartment was something that was quite key because, as you say, it had to look quite lived in. Um, and so it was a location that we found, and we, and we certainly dressed things in, but it felt... It felt very much like a perfect uh, Cal and Terry place, very, mm-hmm. you know, full of full of stuff. Uh, and as you say, like um, no, no no one would believe that these guys were down on their luck and needed money if they were living in a sort of huge, spacious apartment that had a view over the strip and that kind of thing. 
So it had to be something that sort of felt a bit run down but full of things. Um, and, uh, and, we, and we did actually try to shoot it in a way that made you feel like things were sort of closing in on them. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of very slow, subtle push-in shots on the guys that, you know, that, that give you the idea that things are sort of, uh, you know, getting a bit claustrophobic for them. Yeah, yeah it, it really comes across. And I have to say, the bar scene, the club scenes, that is so Vegas. That is spot on. It was almost like you could just be, you know, smelling the sweat and the sticky fingers on the bar. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, locate, the locations in Vegas are fantastic. There were bars, there were strip clubs, there was the, the diner location. There were so many places that lend themselves cinematically. And then when you've got Corey lighting it and lending it, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a dream, it's a dream place to shoot. It's one of the most cinematic places I've ever shot in my life. And, and the, bar, the bar scenes with, that's, uh, that's a place called Champagne's uh, Cafe, um, a wonderful place um, where we shot several scenes. And, and you walk in there and you look at it and you go, well, this all this already looks like a movie. I almost don't need to start yeah. any movie lights. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a wonderful place to wonderful place to shoot. Well, in the diner, so much of the activity in this film does take place in the diner, and I love. I don't know if this is natural lighting in there or if Corey enhanced this, but we get this kind of sickly, you know, yellow tinge to the entire yeah. diner. But it also, it speaks because we're looking at a lot of the primary colors here because of the neons in Vegas. We've got the reds, the stop, the danger, yellow, caution. And this is where they're doing a lot of their plotting and planning. It's like a cautionary, oh, please don't listen to these guys. Don't listen to these guys, to the poor waitress yeah. in there. And, and you've got the greens and the blues. That Then it's like, okay, they're full steam ahead with something. But I love yeah, I how mean, you I use mean, that color metaphorically again uh, again that that's Corey, and it, you know it, it, it's a very limited budget film I, and i'm very proud to say that when people when you look at it you would think that the budget was probably 10 or 20 times what, what was actually spent making it and it was a 10-day shoot as well so we didn't have a lot of time to do things but but the in terms of the lighting Corey had a, a small but very cool um kit of um of uh, very movable and uh, and lightweight uh, movie lights that he was very quick at, you know to sort of move around and get into a position and things and put and using a lot of uh, practical lights in, in shots as well to you know to add to that sort of Vegas feel so even if we were in a location where you can't see the strip through the window or anything you still get that feeling of Vegas yeah. because of it. There's, you know, there's some neon lights dressed in uh, somewhere. Well, now this begs a very important question because we do have the actual grave robbery in a cemetery. We have a vigil in a cemetery, um, nighttime. So you don't want the neon and the light that permeates Vegas. So what was the trick to actually right. make it feel that dark yeah. and not like okay we're just two blocks away from elvis's wedding chapel yeah. or something <laughs> well for, well in terms of the lighting there i think Corey threw up a a main um a sort of main light to, to mimic moonlight and then we dressed in a few um smaller ones for close-ups and that kind of thing but uh, yeah, the, the nighttime visual that you mentioned that gets a bit of an assist uh, of an assist from the headlights from the from the van when the guys pull up and they see what's going on but that was mainly, that was sort of one key light mimicking moonlight and then a few smaller ones to fill in. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that actual location, we, we were quite blessed with that in that we, we didn't have too many lights uh, impinging things from a distance because we were, as I say, it was a 10-day shoot and, uh, and, you know, it was a lot of very, very fast and intense prep. And we had a, um, 
a cemetery location in Vegas booked um, and good to go. And we were mid-shoot. And then all of a sudden, they called us up and said, look, actually, we've taken a look at the, the scene that you guys want to shoot here, and we've decided we don't want to let you do it because <laughs> we don't... Uh, their objection was to having a scene of someone being dug up. They, they, they didn't want to be associated with that, even though it's fictional. Um, and so they pull out. We've lost that location. And by this point, we're already shooting. So the juggernaut's kind of already moving. And, you, and it's very difficult to, you know, to, to change one day to another. So we've got two days to find um, a replacement cemetery. And on this day, we're shooting in Champagne's Cafe, one of the bar scenes, with Mr. Las Vegas himself, Wayne Newton. Who's come and who's come and done a couple of things in the film for us, very kindly, and and he asked us, look, how how are things going? And we said, well, you know, shooting's very good. We're very pleased with what we're getting, but we've just hit this bump in the road. We've just lost the cemetery that we're shooting at in two days' time. And he said, well, look, why don't you come, why don't you come shoot it in my backyard? And we sort of laughed and said, you know, thank you very much, Wade. I think we need something a bit bigger than a backyard. And he sort of smiled and said why don't you come and see my backyard tonight and tell me what you think? And if you don't want to use it, you don't have to use it. And we went along after filming that night, and it was a 27-acre green, plush, uh, wooded um, Arabian horse farm that he has in yeah. the middle of Vegas. It, it's like an entire city block. Um, and he's got the whole thing, and he breeds horses there. Yeah. And it was massive. And we looked at it and sort of thought, yeah, this is perfect. And so we dressed in a few prop gravestones, you know, made of styrofoam in the background that looked look, look like the real thing. And then two nights later, we were there in Wayne Newton's very large backyard in Vegas, digging a very large, very deep hole in the middle of it, um, which he allowed us to do. And, and also shooting scenes with, as you say, like uh, extras doing a candlelit vigil and that kind of thing. And, and it turned into a real family affair because his daughter, Lauren, came and played um, the sort of surly gum-chewing waitress in the diner scenes. But also, on the night we were shooting the vigil, his wife, Kat, stepped in and played the um, reporter for us. The, the, oh, sort of, wow. The lady who's reporting live from the scene. So it became like a proper Newton family affair. Um, but yeah, all of, all of that stuff where you see them digging up the grave, that's all in Wayne Newton's back, backyard. Oh, my um, God. And he let, he let us dig a very deep grave there. And thankfully, we, we ran away before he made us fix it. <laughs> well, and I've seen pictures uh, in magazines of Wayne Newton's beautiful backyard when they've done articles and interviews with him about his Arabian horses. So it's a very beautiful, lush backyard. And he let you dig a very deep hole. That's really... The the one thing he said was, he said, look, when you're digging, please don't hit the sprinkler system. (laughs) So we just made sure we, you know, we we kept a lookout for pipes and hoses. And thankfully we didn't break anything. How, yeah, but you've got Mr. Las Vegas in your film now, Paul. Yeah, and he, you know, he's he's the nicest guy in the world. He's, I mean, he's he's such an all-round talented entertainer. Sings, tells jokes. He's got such a long acting career, uh, going back decades to when he, you know, to when he was a child. Um, and he's the nicest guy in the world, and, and so professional. And we were so blessed to have him, you know, he come and do our little indie movie. You know, he has always had a reputation. I've met him on on numerous occasions over the years. um, And he has always had a reputation for his generosity um, that people don't know about. This is one of those, this is one of those kindnesses and generosity of spirit that that speaks volumes. um, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, he, did, he didn't have to offer us, he didn't have to let us use his backyard, but he did. And then at the end of it, when we tried to pay him for it, he, um, he, 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 he refused the payment. Aww. So he, he let us have it for free. Absolutely the nicest guy in the world. Wow. Well, now I've got to ask you, I know that you were also filming on Fremont Street. That's never easy. No, that's not. Because uh, that, was, that was interesting. It was a challenge. So we tried to, you know, we, we, we always do things as, uh, as properly as possible. And, and I, you know, and I always urge um, filmmakers to make sure you've got your permits and all those kind of things. But we didn't find the, uh, the Nevada Film Commission or the Nevada Film Office particularly easy to communicate with. They, you know, they're very slow to get back to you. Um, and so when it came to the shooting on Fremont, which is a beautiful uh, place visually, it's, yes. again, another cinematic place that you think you look at it and think, oh, I could, you know, absolutely see stuff being filmed there. Um, when it came to that, what we did was we scheduled all of the filming there to be the last night of uh, filming uh, of the entire shoot. Mm -hmm. So that way, if we did get arrested, it wouldn't impact <laughs> the following day because there wouldn't be a following day. And so we literally, you know, we shot through the day and then in the evening we went down there and, and it's the stuff at the beginning of the movie you see of Simon and Doug dressed as chaplains sort of trying to, you know, pretend they're collecting for charity. Um, and went down there and shot, you know, and, and Corey went handheld with the camera so there's not a big camera rig. And, and, and the actors, they had, um, uh, they had, they were wearing labs so we wouldn't have the big boom sticking mm -hmm. up because that's like, you know, waving a flag saying there's a film crew here. Um, and we shot a long lens from a distance. And Simon and Doug went into the middle of, of Fremont Street dressed as chaplains and barely anyone paid them attention because if you've been on Fremont Street, you know <laughs> the two guys dressed as priests are not the weirdest looking things on Fremont that, Street. It's there's, like... a lot of, there's a lot of craziness going on there. Yep. There's, you know, there's street tax and there's hustlers and there's tourists doing things. At one, at one point, someone from the street who worked there, like the manager of the place, came down and said, hey, what are you, and said to Simon and Doug, they didn't actually see me and Corey because we were a distance away with the camera. And they said, what are you doing? Because they thought they might be collecting for charity, which then you're not allowed to do, and they would move them on. And Simon said that they were there on a bachelor, do, on a bachelor party, and it was part of a dare, <laughs> and, they had to be, and they had to be dressed like this. And the woman just said, okay, and, then, and walked off like it was the most natural answer in the world. Um, and, so, and we oh shot there for God. about 20, 25 minutes. And then just as we were wrapping up, um, security saw us and saw the camera and st started heading over to me and Corey. And it was, it, they were those security guards who were dressed to make you think they might be police uh -huh. at a distance, but they're not really police. And by the time they got close and was asking me what we, what we were doing, I was like, Corey was thankfully taking the card out of the camera and securing it just in case. They, you know, they started insisting we delete stuff. But, yeah, we just about, by the skin of our teeth, managed to film everything we needed and then got out of there before anyone got arrested or, uh, or thrown out. Thankfully. Oh, my God. You know, I'm curious because Doug and Simon star as our, our Dumb and Dumber pair, Terry and Cal. I'm curious, how structured was this script in terms of the dialogue especially with them conceiving the idea and Doug writing it. Was it that scripted? Was there a lot of free-flowing ad-lib happening? Because then you also bring in some of your other actors, including a perfect casting choice with Al Sapienza. Uh, yeah. You gotta have a mobster. You gotta have a mobster. <laughs> um, and and Al, Al, play, Al plays those roles so perfectly. Yeah. Anyone who's a fan of The Sopranos, uh, we'd know him from that, but he, he popped up in so many um, American TV shows. You yep. know, um, he did a season of, of um, House of Cards as well and done a lot of stuff, and he, 
he's sort of the epitome of the of the yes. modern American gangster. Um, and and we've worked with him before, and we're always keen to try and use him where possible. So we're always, uh, you know, uh, seeing if there's anything that Al might be able to do in um, in what we're shooting. And for this, we were very lucky because we were shooting in Vegas, and he's based he's half based in New York, but he's got a place in L.A. So he was, and he was in L.A. at the time, so he came down and did the role for us. Um, Perfect. Uh, over over the course of a couple of days, and he's great. But yeah, uh, in terms of um, script versus impro, it, it was sort of a mixture. So we had um, we you know we we had a locked script that we started with and and what we and we shot everything in that script but what we would do is as we're shooting a scene once we've got the bones of it then i would suggest something to simon and doug or they might have an idea of something that as we've been doing a take there would be something that would be natural to throw in and we'd start playing around with a few ideas if we had time so there was sort of a mixture of um uh, of yeah, yeah, everything, everything that we, everything that was scripted, we shot, but then we would add stuff in afterwards and improvise. Um, so so the, the, um, there were no scenes that were sort of totally uh, unscripted from beginning mm-hmm. to end, but there were a few that we, you know, we did play around with, and and some things end up in the final cut because we've improved them, and some things you try out, and then in the edit you look at it and go, oh, actually, we'll we'll take that out. Um, but it's always worth doing that if you can, um, particularly obviously if you're doing a comedy because. You know, once you've got everything in the script, anything additional that you do is just, you know, a cherry on top. So, yeah. Well, another big cherry on top with Stealing Chaplin is Wesley Dinwiddle's score. The music, it captures the whimsy of the entire caper. We don't get bogged down. Nothing's dramatic or heavy. Nothing is even counterintuitive. This play, yeah, the exactly. score, yeah. it just it's a whimsical fun that fits this yeah, caper yeah. perfectly. Yeah, you're right. Wes did a great score, and, and, and that was very much the thing we were going for. It's not something where you can have dramatic score or anything like that, unless you're using it in an ironic sense in the background or something. And Wes, you know, Wes, I was very proud of him. He, he, he came up with a sort of an almost uh, theme, you know, a, 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 a musical theme tune mm-hmm. for, the, for the guys. So when they're on when they're on screen, you know that they're up to their scam and their, and their caper. And yes, you're right. It's sort of, um, it's sort of a lighthearted kind of, uh, kind of caper kind of tune that's happening uh, whenever the boys are up to something that lets you know they're up to no good. Yeah, I, I really like the score. Um, it, just, it fits every aspect of this story. Uh, you know, I'm very curious for you, Paul, because very eclectic, you write graphic novels, you're a producer, you're a writer, you're a director, you do TV, you do film. What is it that speaks to you? What does something have to speak to you, say to you, to get you to say, yes, I want to make this? Oh, I think it, it has to be something that I, when I look at it, that I, that I would want to see even if someone else was making it. If, if the material interests me and excites me that much that I think I would want to watch this or I would want to read this, um, then then it interests me. And at that point, I think, right, well, if someone's going to do this, I should be the one to do this because I would want to do it my way and I would want to do it, and, and I think I can do it the best way possible. So I think it's, um, it's an appreciation of, the, of the, the material or the idea in the first place from the perspective of would I, would I want to enjoy this as an audience member? And if it grabs you like that, then it, then you sort of uh, you start to look at things and develop things, um, and 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 I, and I do I enjoy writing, but I would say probably the thing I enjoy most is being on set and directing and creating on set in that moment and, and giving yourself the raw material 
later on for the edit. I think that's probably where the that's where the most fun aspect comes. I do enjoy writing, but um, writing is a means to an end to get you to being on set, um, where you could where you're then working with the actors, which is where you really sort of start to play around and um, uh, and and it's a very collaborative thing on set with you know actors, but also all, all the departments uh, bringing their bringing their A game to make everything look and feel and sound as uh, as good as, as it can possibly be. Mm. Favorite moment for you in stealing Chaplin? Oh, um, oh I, I know. know. Was, I mean, it was a very fun shoot. You know, I, I, I'm always wary of saying that because it sounds like you, you, you're not working. But it's it's always very hard work because you're always doing a million things and wearing a million hats. Um, and, as, and as I say, you're shooting in a you know a sort of hundred minute feature in ten days, which is no mean feat. But the, it was very enjoyable because you're working with people that you like and have worked with before and um you know it's sort of a bit like a family always coming back together but also when you know that you're shooting something that it works and you uh, and you and you know yeah this is actually going to be something quite good then you sort of relax into it and you can enjoy it more i think in terms of enjoyment i really did enjoy even though it was a long hard slog of a day the final scene um, of the movie takes place in the desert. There's a sort of kind of Mexican standoff uh, uh-huh. scene of, um, uh, of characters against each other. Now that was, it was logistically very difficult because every single character in the movie turns up at the end. Um, and so that suddenly becomes a lot of shooting and you have to be quite judicious with uh, what you're going to be shooting and you have to plan it quite well. But I was very pleased with that because it, it pretty much came out exactly as I had planned in my head. But also, that was one of those scenes where we shot everything that we needed, but then we improvised something. Mm-hmm. And the thing that was improvised was the argument between Doug and Simon at the end, that sort of um, sort of annoying the other characters as they're doing it. We, you know, we, we shot the scene, then we thought, let's let's add something. So we added that argument, and it seemed to work very well. Um, and I was, yeah, I was just very, I was very pleased with that final scene at the end. But but really, the whole thing was like enjoyable to shoot from beginning to end. So what else can, do we have to look forward to from you? I know we've got Age of the Living Dead that's on Amazon Prime. Yep. Um, so we, um, as well as Stephen Chaplin out now um, on digital and DVD, uh, we recently uh, released our horror movie at Christmas, which was The Night Before Christmas, um, which I made with, uh, which uh, Simon is in and Doug was the production designer on. And coming up uh, later on in the year, we have season two of Age of the Living Dead, which will be on Amazon Prime. Um, but also, we're going into pre-production on our next feature, which is a follow-on to Stealing Chaplin, which we kind of hint at in the credits at the end. But um, what we've decided we really enjoyed this one, and uh, people seem to be reacting well to it. So we'd like to continue the story of Cal and Terry. And the title of the next one, which may give away sort of where we're going with it, is Stealing Elvis. <laughs> so you can see where oh! we're heading with that one. I, it's, uh, I can just imagine, now that we have established these two characters of Cal and Terry, I can just imagine what you can do. And you, you have to bring Wesley back to do the scoring for it. I'm, I'm serious. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Because what you can, you know, oh, my God, my mind is reeling already with the musical motifs that he can come up with. Uh, to go with a story like that. And when you think about all the people um, that you could bring in to a story like that, 
Yeah, I watched through the end credits, and I thought, all right, is this a tease, or, you know, <laughs> what are we getting? Because, oh, I'm in. Sequel, I'm in. I'm in. Okay, good. Thank you. Well, um, um, I'll let you know when we're filming it, and then um, uh, where, 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 where about the U.S. you based? I'm in L.A. Okay, well, we're probably going to shoot some of it in Vegas again, so I'll let you know. And if you're, uh, I if love you're around, Vegas. then you're very welcome to come down and visit. I love Vegas, Paul. I love Vegas. Yeah. Oh, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> oh, my God, yes. Well, unfortunately, we are all out of time. Paul, this has been fabulous having you on the show today talking about Stealing much. Chaplin. Uh, this is truly, it, it is a film that that is worthy of Chaplin himself. Uh, it just, Brilliant. it's fabulous. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you very much, Debbie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. And that was Paul Tanter, director of Stealing Chaplin. It's everywhere. See it now. Um, And you will laugh. You will definitely laugh uh, at the absurdity within this film. But, uh, yeah. That'll make you laugh. The Waterman will make you fill you with hope and make you hug your loved ones. Two fun films today, opposite ends of the spectrum, both well worth watching. That is all the time we have today. Next week, we've got Mindy Bledsoe joining us, writer, director, actor, uh, to talk about her new film. And I don't know what else. I haven't gotten that far ahead in planning. So... Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.